0: Welcome to Non-Binding Guidance, a podcast series from Ropes & Gray focused on current trends in FDA regulatory law, as well as other important developments affecting the life sciences industry. I'm Kelly Combs, a partner in the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice in Ropes & Gray's Washington, D.C. office. I'm joined today by my partner Josh Oyster, also from the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Group. Today's episode continues our 2024 U.S. Life Sciences Regulatory Outlook podcast series. We will be discussing key developments and trends related to medical product advertising and promotion today. We're going to cover the latest enforcement trends, revisit FDA's most recent guidance on the communication of off-label scientific information, and also discuss the implications of a long-awaited First Circuit decision that was announced in December. Let's jump in. Josh, what ad promo enforcement did we see in 2023? Were there any big surprises from the agency?
1: Yes, Kelly, happy to take that one. So enforcement remains relatively light as compared to where it was 10 years ago from an ad promo standpoint in 2023. We're in a world where there was just four untitled letters and and one warning letter. Uh, But that wasn't a a big surprise because it has been the trend in recent years from the Office of Prescription Drug Promotion. where there has been a bit of a shift is there's a trend uh, recently toward more uh, CFO focused enforcement. And what I mean by that is letters that are taking issue with claims that are misleading because they aren't uh, necessarily complying with some of the recommendations uh, set forth in the CFL guidance, the consistent with FDA required labeling guidance. Just to cover a few of the examples uh, from 2023. There was that one warning letter I mentioned. It was issued in August 2023 to a large pharma company related to promotion of a drug for the treatment of COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. FDA took issue uh, with what they considered to be false or misleading efficacy claims, including one statement about a study where there had been, quote, an observed difference in time to all cause mortality. FDA faulted that claim because it wasn't statistically significant because there had been a statistical testing failure with an endpoint earlier in the sequence of the statistical analysis plan. Therefore, FDA didn't like a claim based on an endpoint lower in the hierarchy. However, the statement in this case was just observed difference, not significant difference. And there was a statement below the uh, the claim, below a graph, that said, these results are observational in nature, and any comparisons between treatment arms should be interpreted with caution. FDA said that disclaimer didn't mitigate the misleading impression. Um, and part of the reason I think FDA said this is that no COPD product has been shown to improve all-cause mortality to date, and, and you know, in other words, no product has been approved with, with reduction in all-cause mortality in the product label, and FDA pointed this out in the warning letter, so it probably contributed to why FDA was so concerned here, FDA thinking about this particular claim, which on its face just said observed difference in the context of the overall product profile uh, and the competitive landscape of COPD products. Um, Jumping from that warning letter to some of the untitled letters, in June 2023, there was an untitled letter to a pharma company related to a drug for a rare metabolic condition. In that letter, FDA cited false or misleading efficacy claims, uh, as well as the minimization of risk information. One of the claims at issue involved uh, a a material that said 67% of patients who moved on to the second part of the study had normal cortisol levels. By the end of the study. FDA then disputed that claim by citing information directly from the package insert that contradicted uh, what the claim said. Then in August 2023, FDA sent an untitled letter to a pharma company related to a social media sponsored post uh, for a birth control drug. Um, One of the issues in that letter was uh, the complete omission of risk information uh, from the social media post, uh, which uh, which is something that FDA will will commonly cite um, if there's just no no risk information at all um, in a promotional uh, piece. Jumping ahead in October, FDA issued an- another untitled letter to a to a company related to a direct to consumer brochure for a contraceptive drug. FDA faulted the company for presenting uh, the benefit information in a false or misleading way by saying, among other things, that. of pregnancies were prevented per act of sex Um, and continuing to say, well, that means the drug prevented pregnancy 99% of the time. FDA criticized the way those numbers were presented because in FDSU, quote, per act of sex is not a validated measure to demonstrate the efficacy of contraceptive products. Essentially, that that 99% number and the way the company was calculating it was overstating the efficacy of the product. Uh, Then also in October, FDA sent an untitled letter to a company related to a TV advertisement for a depression drug. Uh, In that instance, one of the claims FDA was concerned about uh, said when added to an antidepressant, this drug was proven to reduce depression symptoms 62% more than the antidepressant alone. FDA thought this claim was misleading um, Essentially, based on the way that the uh, the way that the company was treating the the denominator, FDA thought the comparison should be made against the baseline uh, score in the study, as opposed to the score of the other arm, the antidepressant arm. Uh, and then, you know, the important thing, perhaps, to to think about for all these untitled letters, uh, notwithstanding that they're you know they're all public. FDA issued closeout letters in each case within a couple of months, meaning that FDA had gotten a response from the company, and FDA issued a letter back to the company saying, "You know, we've gotten your response, and we think it adequately addresses uh, the concerns that we had raised." Um, so it's interesting that in all these cases, despite FDA's original concerns, um, FDA was comfortable closing all of them out in relatively short order. Um, you know, Kelly, in light of all that uh, just sort of covered, uh, what lessons you know can we glean from, from FDA's more recent letters and, and what sort of big takeaways um, are you providing to clients?
0: Thanks, Josh, for that helpful overview. I mean, I think in 2023 and then even going back for the last few years, we've seen more of a focus, as you said, on CFL-type claims. And there are, I think, some lessons we can glean from those letters if we read them all together. Um, number one, I think that companies should be avoiding bold claims and characterizations regarding CFL data, especially where there are study design or statistical limitations, like, you know, for example, post hoc analysis, failed endpoints in the hierarchy. Situations where analyses are not controlled for multiplicity. These are just a few examples. And the idea here is that it's important to carefully consider use of that data and how any sort of claim or presentation uh, will be handled in the piece, right? So it will be lower risk, for example, to present data in a neutral way without significant characterization by the company. In other words, let the data speak for itself. Additionally, it's going to be important to use robust disclaimers. Those should be prominent, they should be complete in disclosing the limitations, and they should also be clear about the value of the data and whether clinical conclusions can be drawn from it. We saw in the AZ letter and we've seen in other letters that FDA expresses concern when a disclaimer just says something like interpret the data with caution. And from FDA's perspective, This might not be enough. You need to present the the data with more detailed disclaimers. Uh, And that's also going to be important from a First Amendment perspective when you're evaluating whether the content is truthful and not misleading. It's also going to be important to present CFL data in context. In other words, as supportive of other existing data, such as data from your label, and not as a central focus of the piece or creating a brand new piece uh, simply focused on CFL data. Um, FDA says in the CFL guidance that data should generally be presented um, in the context of information from product labeling um, rather than as kind of standalone data or claims. And we see some of these concepts really coming through uh, many of the letters that we've seen over the last few years. It's also, of course, fundamental that your underlying study or analysis is, in fact, scientifically sound. So, FDA makes clear in the CFL guidance that in some cases, your study or analysis just may lack the scientific rigor that's needed to support presentation of the data. In other words, there may be cases where the study, the analysis, the data, simply is not adequate, regardless of any disclaimers or disclosures that are presented to support that promotional claim. It's also important to consider the regulatory history surrounding the data, as well as the product profile and the competitive landscape of the product. So what do we mean when we're talking about the regulatory history? So there may well be prior correspondence with FDA, That's relevant and can be very helpful in evaluating how FDA would evaluate the claim and what sort of risk it will pose. So for example, did the issue, did the data, did the claim come up in the context of labeling negotiations with the agency? And what was the FDA's view there Um, to the extent that FDA struck data or struck certain language from the labeling that you now want to use in your promotional material, what was FDA's rationale for doing that? There is a different standard, of course, for including information and labeling than for promotional material. So I'm certainly not saying that you can never use data or claims and promotion that FDA didn't permit in the labeling, but it will give you a view into whether FDA considers the data or would consider the claim to be false or misleading. It may also be informative in terms of what sort of context uh, is necessary or what sort of disclaimer should be provided. There might also be information, uh, you know, that was shared by FDA during the clinical development process, concerns that FDA may have with a particular endpoint or something along those lines. Also be thinking about the product profile and the competitive landscape. Um, So the all-cause mortality endpoint that was at issue in the AstraZeneca warning letter The fact that it was that endpoint was apparently important to FDA, important enough to call it out um, in the warning letter, and to note that no other product um, had this claim in their labeling. So you need to be thinking about all of these things when determining whether to move forward with CFL data and to make sure you're doing it in a thoughtful way. So Josh, I want to turn it back to you, what should we be making of the fact that FDA recently is seems to be more aggressive in terms of the types of claims that it's citing and warning and entitled letters. But the number of letters still remains pretty low. And as you suggested, FDA is closing out those entitled letters pretty quickly. What does it all mean?
1: At bottom, I'd I'd say that the the low number of letters still likely driven by just the limited resources that that FDA and in particular OPDP has. OPDP has a number of responsibilities um in including the the enforcement aspects that it um handles through untitled letters and warning letters, but also a robust research agenda they provide advisory comments they provide comments on um launch materials so there's a lot of work that that opdp is involved in and um likely they're focusing their enforcement efforts on you know areas of of significance to them and that they see as as very important, Um, you know, whether uh, we start to see a shift there in in, in the coming years, either because the number of letters goes up or, you know, perhaps because uh, there are heightened expectations on companies that are receiving letters in terms of corrective actions or preventive actions. um, I I think we'll just have to see.
0: Thanks, Josh. Um, Let's move on now to our next topic uh, and talk about FDA's recent revised draft guidance on communication of scientific information on unapproved uses. This guidance document was issued in October and, you know, certainly was one of the most significant policy developments related to off-label communications in a very long time. Uh, This was a revised draft of a, a prior draft that had been on the book since 2014. So certainly a long time coming. We had covered this draft guidance uh, in some detail in a prior client alert and also in a podcast that we released in November. So we didn't, don't need to repeat all of that discussion here.
1: And so comments to the draft guidance were due to FDA in, in early January after we did our, our podcast and our, and our client alert. Uh, Kelly, now that, now that you've had a chance to sort of take a look at the comments that industry have, you know, what, what was the reaction to the new guidance?
0: Let's talk about some of the core themes that are coming out of the comments submitted by industry groups and life sciences companies. and I'll just give a few examples, won't talk about these in detail. You know, there was, I think, a general sense of appreciation from industry that FDA was moving forward um, in providing uh, you know, kind of more guidance in this area as we mentioned, it had been a decade since FDA had released any guidance on this topic. and, Many in industry did point out, uh, you know, a few very welcome developments um, and changes in the guidance. So, for example, I think folks were generally appreciative that FDA has acknowledged that companies can have off-label discussions based on an accompanying reprint um, and can generate presentations based on reprints. That's not an activity that FDA had explicitly sanctioned in the past. Also, acknowledgments uh, by industry groups and and companies that FDA um, had specifically acknowledged social media um, as an appropriate form of communication, at least in certain cases, as it related to scientific communications, as well as scientific communications that occur in commercial exhibit halls. Also, many concerns expressed with the way that the guidance refers to intended use Um, So as we know, FDA finalized uh, a new intended use rule a couple of years ago and continues to assert very broad authority to consider not just advertising and labeling, but also, uh, you know, all sorts of evidence uh, with respect to the determination of when a company um, is promoting its product for a new intended or off-label use And one of the important changes that we saw from the draft guidance that existed in 2014 and this new revised draft is FDA essentially says in this revised draft that if a company complies with the recommendations in the guidance, that it will not use dissemination of scientific information under the guidance, quote, standing alone as evidence of a new intended use. And that standing alone language um, is an important caveat and certainly has significant implications because it suggests that a company can follow the guidance to a T, and if there's anything else that FDA can point to with respect to the off-label use, the guidance can still be considered as one of perhaps many sources of evidence that FDA would look to as part of an intended use inquiry. That is significant because fda does assert such sweeping authority to consider all sorts of evidence when it comes to intended use so as a practical matter the concern is there's almost always going to be something else that the government can point to in the intended use determination many commenters also um, took issue with the way that the guidance is framed and in particular with statements in the guidance about how scientific communications provided under the guidance should be provided to HCPs that are engaged in clinical practice decisions for the care of an individual patient. So this is language that did not occur in prior iterations of the guidance, and many commenters expressed concern that this was too narrow of a formulation, this individual patient formulation. For example, Folks express concern that this wouldn't necessarily cover HCPs who are engaged in broader care decisions, for example, for a group of patients, for a population of patients, and so on. It also doesn't expressly cover other very legitimate purposes for HCPs to receive information about unapproved uses of approved product, for example, for research purposes or for the purpose of other scientific discussion. And then finally, I think the the most robust discussion coming out of comments from the industry groups and the companies related to various concerns associated with a clinically relevant and scientifically sound standard, that's the new substantiation standard that FDA introduced in the guidance. And as a general matter, um, commenters expressed concern that the substantiation standard was poorly defined and overly restrictive and burdensome. Some made the point that the substantiation standard in many ways, especially if you look at the examples that FDA cites about what meets and what doesn't meet the standard, really feels more like a drug approval standard or in some cases even higher than the device approval or clearance standard, as opposed to a truthful and non-misleading standard that would be more appropriate for non-promotional scientific communications A number of commenters honed in on the statement in the guidance where FDA says that early-stage data are unlikely to be clinically relevant, as an example that is particularly overly restrictive, and many concerns expressed that clinical relevance is really something that is in the eye of the beholder, meaning the healthcare professional that is evaluating the information, means certainly... The industry groups, the life sciences companies have no interest in disseminating junk science, no concern with the concept of clinical relevance, no concern with a concept of scientifically sound, but a lot of concerns expressed with the way that FDA is articulating and defining those concepts um, in a way that might be burdensome to the companies. So Josh, let me turn it back to you now, um, putting aside the substance of the guidance for a moment. Commenters had asked FDA for an extension of the comment period, but as it turned out, FDA granted only a very short extension. It appears that FDA is motivated to finalize the guidance, and in light of the comments that FDA has received, do we really expect that to happen this year?
1: Great question, Kelly. I I think there's a decent chance that FDA does actually finalize. The guidance in 2024. One, some FDA officials have indicated at at conferences and in other uh, public venues that the agency does intend to finalize the guidance. Um, And and second, and and more generally, this isn't specific to the SIU draft guidance. We see FDA at the beginning of 2024 gearing up to try and get a lot done uh, early in the year uh, before the upcoming uh, presidential election. You know whether FDA is successful on all fronts and and doing everything it wants to accomplish uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but but certainly that's the intent. Um, you know I'll, I'll I'll caution that we don't know exactly what's on the Cedar uh, guidance agenda for 2024 uh, because it hasn't been released yet. And and last year in the 2023 Cedar guidance agenda, the SIUU guidance. Wasn't even on it, uh, but but FDA released the draft anyway. So you know, as a guidance, that no one, you know, knew to expect, uh, but it came anyway. You know, so here it it, it it is possible that that we that we could get the final guidance uh, in in twenty four, and I think industry should be should be on the lookout for that one.
0: As our last topic, let's turn to the decision in the Facto and Fabian case from the First Circuit. We talked about the decision in a recent client alert on our website, but Josh, can you set the stage and remind us why we were waiting intently for that decision for so long?
1: Sure, happy to. So on December 14th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit issued a long-awaited opinion affirming the convictions of two former executives of a clarant on misdemeanor, adulteration, misbranding charges under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act related to their involvement in the off-label promotion of a medical device. Uh, This was a long time coming because the defendants, Facto and Fabian, were initially convicted of misdemeanor charges and acquitted on felony charges uh, in a jury trial that happened in 2016. Then four years later in 2020, the district court uh, upheld their convictions uh, when it ruled on some post-trial motions. The defendants appealed after that to the First Circuit, uh, but the case had been lingering there for the past couple of years. The district court had had struggled with a lot of the complicated charging theories under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and had even called into question whether whether the conduct at issue in this case was really what, what Congress had intended to criminalize under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, the First Circuit didn't seem to have the same uh, existential concerns with what it was doing. The, the First Circuit uh, rejected essentially all of the defendant's arguments and backed the government's positions, many of which we've seen FDA express in other contexts over the years, such as in uh, the preamble to FDA's intended use final rule from a couple of years ago that, that you were talking about earlier, Kelly. As an example, the First Circuit rejected a challenge to the jury instructions on First Amendment grounds. The First Circuit found no issue under the First Amendment with using speech even truthful, non-misleading speech as evidence of an unapproved, uncleared intended use for a medical device. And the basis for this is a a longstanding Supreme Court decision called Wisconsin versus Mitchell that has nothing to do with medical products or FDA, but had established the principle uh, that using speech as evidence of intent uh, did not run afoul of the First Amendment. The First Circuit distinguished the case of United States versus Coronia, that seminal case from the Second Circuit a decade ago. Uh, The First Circuit viewed Coronia as being about a different misbranding theory for a different type of defendant, in that case, a sales rep. And, And perhaps most importantly, as a case where the government did not actually limit its use of speech solely to evidence of intended use. The First Circuit also found that FDA's safe harbor policies embodied in guidance documents, such as FDA's reprints guidance or its guidance on responding to unsolicited requests, do not burden protected speech within the meaning of the First Amendment because they expand rather than contract the amount of speech that the government shields from consideration as evidence of intended use. Furthermore, the First Circuit rejected the defendant's argument that only external promotional claims can qualify as evidence of intended use. And the First Circuit, you know, backed uh, uh, the FDA's position on what can qualify as evidence of intended use that, you know, the one that Kelly was just talking about a moment ago. That Circuit also rejected the argument that FDA's intended use regime was unconstitutionally vague. The court acknowledged that the intended use regulation, quote, cast a wide net and conceded that there, there could be some uncertainty when, in a close case, whether there'll be sufficient evidence to prove that a manufacturer marketed an Device for an off-label intended use, but the First Circuit emphasized that this was not a close case in terms of the evidence that had been offered to establish uh, the objective intent of the defendants, facto and fabian. And it's 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 worth noting that uh, you know, despite the apparent decisiveness in the First Circuit's rejection of the defendant's arguments, there still remains a lot of disagreement among industry stakeholders about this opinion.
0: Thanks, Josh. So what do you think the key takeaways are uh, for the medical product industry going forward? Uh, the First Circuit decision is technically just relevant in one circuit, but because it backs up a lot of FDA's prior positions, what do we think the agency or the government more generally does with this decision?
1: That, that's a great question. And it, it, it's going to be interesting to see a bit because post Corona, FDA downplayed that decision for many years went to great lengths to try and confine that holding to its facts and to say crony was really about just the particular jury instruction at in that case and the way that it had been, been handled. It will be interesting if, in contrast, FDA tries to position Facto and Fabian in the First Circuit as having broader, more universal implications. Um, but there are important things to keep in mind about the First Circuit opinion that suggests it may in some respects be 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 limited to its facts. For one, um, the court emphasized repeatedly um, the, the scope of the evidence that supported the defendant's convictions, and and as I just mentioned a moment ago, said you know this this wasn't a close case. I think we'll just have to see uh, in the coming years how, if at all, it, it plays into FDA's uh, enforcement going forward. So one thing along those lines that a question I have is: Do we expect to see more? FDA enforcement in 2024, or at least more enforcement outside of traditional areas? For example, might we see more enforcement based on evidence of intended use other than promotional claims? What do you think, Kelly?
0: Yeah, Josh, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, if you look at the arc of agency activity in the ad promo space dating back for a few years it feels like FDA is laying the groundwork for more aggressive promotional enforcement. Uh, you know, certainly with the finalized intended use rule a, a, a couple of years ago and in the Federal Register preamble, FDA made some very sweeping statements about its authority related to intended use, um, not just with respect to promotional claims, but with respect to all sorts of evidence, including certain types of scientific exchange. We also had renewed attention as evidence through the, the SIUU guidance we were talking about. And of course, all of those letters um, based on CFL data and presentations where FDA is taking issue, not only with bold promotional claims and presentations of data, but in some cases really calling into question the underlying data set itself. Josh, what do you think?
1: The conditions suggest that FDA might Look to pursue more enforcement in 2024 and subsequent years, and I say that with with some hesitation, especially after the intended use final rule that uh, in FDA's mind clarified a lot of its authority. FDA put forth in writing its 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 position that was supposed to articulate you know kind of once and for all its stance on evidence of intended use. Um, but in the couple of years since that rule, we 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 haven't seen FDA exercising. Um, more aggressive enforcement in that regard. Um, But now in light of other developments like the First Circuit opinion, in facto and Fabian might, might we see, see more. That's the the big thing that I'll be watching uh, in 2024.
0: Thanks, Josh. Uh, Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode in our outlook 2024 series. We hope that you stay tuned for the fourth and final episode in our series in the coming days. For more information about our practice and other topics of interest to life sciences companies, please visit our FDA regulatory and life sciences practice pages at www.ropesgray.com. You can also listen to non-binding guidance and other Ropes Talk podcasts in our podcast newsroom on the Ropes and Gray website, or you can subscribe to this series wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. Thank you again for listening.